This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's exactly a week since Flight 752 was shot down by Iran. And after admitting that they lied and taking responsibility, Tehran is now taking a bellicose stand. In an angry speech on state television, Iranian President Hassan Rouhani made veiled threats against American and European forces in the region, claiming they, quote, may be in danger tomorrow. This, according to Reuters, and an Iranian general is saying that the incident was a, quote, mistake imposed by our enemies. The regime is also demanding that the U.S. apologize to Tehran for its, again, quote, previous crimes. Meanwhile, Canada, with the largest number of victims, is walking a fine line. And some Americans are interpreting the prime minister's recent comments as blaming the U.S. for the tragedy. Our government has said that helping the families of the victims is its priority. Meanwhile, Iran does not recognize dual citizens, so by its count, only three Canadians were on board, not the 57 citizens we lost. We will dig into these issues at more. We will be taking calls in a bit. The number is 416 toll-free 1-866-744-740. Right now, I welcome Peter McKay, who is a partner with Baker and McKenzie. He is a former Minister of Foreign Affairs as well as former Attorney General and Minister of National Defense. Larry Haas, a former White House strategist and currently a fellow, senior fellow for U.S. foreign policy at the American Foreign Policy Council. And David Carmet, Professor of International Affairs at Carleton University. Thank you so much and welcome to you all. Pleasure to be with you. you. Pleasure to be with you. Uh, let us start with Peter McKay. And Peter, in addition to your professional experience, you are closer to this by virtue of the fact that your wife is an Iranian-Canadian. So from, from that more personal standpoint, um, how are, are people feeling right now about the way the government is handling this? Well, let me firstly thank you for, for recognizing that. It does touch our family. My wife, Nazanin, her family came to Canada um, after the 1979 revolution in Iran, and she's been very active in the community along with family members. And, of course, they um, are sharing in the, the grief and the frustration and the, the anger in the aftermath of this tragic loss of so many innocent lives and the communities across the country are feeling the, the embrace of their fellow Canadians, uh, their families. And uh, there, there has to be this emphasis, uh, rightly, on support for those who are mourning. But there is a long history you've referenced, and there is a, a more recent and troubling history as to how we found ourselves in this place. Uh, Iran's human rights abuses have been on display for a very long time their recklessness towards their own people, the broader international community and the proxy uh, stirring of the pot that they have been involved in for a very long time has, has led us and culminated in this particular incident. 
And um, Iranians, of course, are now taking to the streets in their own country. And Iranians here in Canada, Iranian Canadians and, and uh, those in the international community are also calling for action. And, and I would hope that we could lay out some of what that action should be here today in the face of this tragedy uh, for the Canadian Iranian community uh, are united in their grief, but they're calling for action. They're calling for concrete steps that Canada and the international community can and should be taking. Okay, well, we'll get to those in a moment. I'd like to bring in Larry Haas. Hello, Larry. Hi, how are you doing? Fine, how are you? Just fine, down here in D.C. Okay, well, um, what do you make of the new... First, they admitted responsibility, uh, which some people are interpreting as, you know, a bid to bury the whole thing by finding some scapegoats, and, and now they seem to be threatening American troops. Well, look, I think that uh, what we've seen over the course of the last few days is actually a reflection of the fact that, like many countries, including ours, uh, Iran is divided. Um, It's divided at the top, and it's divided across the population. Ultimate power rests. Uh, with a an unelected supreme leader who acts as a semi-dictator, uh, and he is supported uh, by the uh, Revolutionary Guard Corps, a hardcore militant operation that helps with terrorism uh, both near and far, uh, and at the same time has a government that tries in many ways to have a more moderate uh, feel to it, but ultimately doesn't have, um, you know, the final say in important matters. At the same time, you know, we were hearing early on back here in the United States that uh, the attack on Soleimani, the uh, drone attack that killed this top military commander uh, several days ago, was going to somehow unite the Iranian uh, people uh, with their government and against the United States. And we've seen, not surprisingly, uh, actually quite the opposite. The Iranian people continue to be fed up with their government, and this accidental uh, shooting down, if it was an accident, which I presume it was... uh, uh, That was going to be my next question. Do you believe it was an accident? I actually do, because I'm not quite sure what the strategic uh, goal would be of the regime to take out that passenger jet. But let me just uh, finish my point on that. Um, uh, We have seen uh, a rise in the long-festering anger of the Iranian people toward their government. Their larger issues have to do with the fact that they have no political liberty, they have little economic opportunity due to the sanctions that we have reimposed here in the United States. Their economy is suffering terribly. But, you know, they're they're taking to the streets and yelling, death to the dictator, and we need a new regime, and America's not our enemy. And they know, as your previous speaker said, uh, what the nature of this regime is. So, you know, why is the uh, government uh, getting bellicose uh, when it looked like it was going to be cooperative? Because it's playing to uh, different constituencies. Uh, it's, 
It's, you know, cognizant of the Supreme Leader, cognizant of the Revolutionary Guard Corps, uh, cognizant of the fact that it is unpopular at home and perhaps needs external enemies to, you know, increase its uh, support, although I don't, think that the, I don't think that's a winning proposition. But that's why all of these divisions, I think, are the reason why you're seeing this difference from day to day in terms of who says what and what it is they're saying. Uh, and Dr. David Carment, yeah. um, first of all, uh, do you think uh, that this, all of the, the unrest currently in Iran, do you think it has the potential to bring this regime down? Well, that's the big question, isn't it? I mean, whether or not, uh, as uh, our previous speaker just said, there is something uh, <clears throat> that is deeper than just simply challenging the status quo within the Iranian government and across Iranian society. This goes to the bigger question of whether there's a broader strategy here within the U.S. government. And Donald Trump's uh, uh, Secretary of State, uh, uh, Michael Pompeo, whether they believe that the, the goal here is really to bring a major transformation uh, in Iranian behavior. And <clears throat> the, the concern that I think a lot of us have looking sort of on the uh, at this picture from the outside is whether the current policy is uh, inducing behavioral change within Iranian society and within the political milieu, or whether it's really going to antagonize them and push them into a corner where they will ultimately strike back, which will then further justify a more militant approach uh, from the American side. So uh, without a clear sense of purpose or strategy underlying the American foreign policy agenda, it's it's unclear whether the goal here is really to foment uh, regime change or destabilize Iranian society, reduce the threat it poses to its regional uh, neighbors, as well as, uh, as we've now heard, allies within the, uh, the West who are working with uh, forces in Iraq to train them, to equip them to fight against Islamic State, and we now know uh, that they have been uh, targeted by uh, Shia uh, militia in Iraq uh, who are uh, supported by the, the Iranian government indirectly. So there's a larger set of questions that need to be really <coughs> addressed uh, before we can even get into the question of whether changes within Iran are, are beneficial or not. What is the, the end game that the Americans in particular are trying to pursue here? By applying a maximum pressure agenda on Iran, it's clear that they are um, pursuing a more coercive diplomatic uh, strategy, which has now forced the hand, I think, of the Europeans and will eventually uh, compel, I think, uh, our prime minister to also fall in line and pursue a more maximum. Okay, I'd, I'd like a little reaction to what you've been saying. Uh, Peter McKay, there are people here in Canada uh, who are saying, uh, either they're saying uh, at the end of the day this is Trump's fault because of the assassination, or they're saying once again Canada is caught in the middle between a, in a dispute between the United States and Iran. What do you say to those people? Well, I say the responsibility for the bringing down of, of Flight 752 lies entirely and exclusively with Iran, and the investigation is ongoing. We'll hear more specifically about this, but you know, this suggestion that this was the fault of Donald Trump or uh, was the culmination of other events is simply untrue, and it's it's actually taking the focus away from where the responsibility lies. 
Look, there, there's been a cascading of events here. Let's not forget there was an American contractor killed in Iraq. There, were, uh, there was an attempt to overrun the American embassy in Baghdad. And let's not forget the missile strikes that happened almost within hours of that plane being shot down. So, uh, and those demonstrations speakers, in the streets of Tehran uh, were deadly before all of this happened. That's right. And, and look, it's ongoing. There's thousands in jeopardy. People are being arrested. People are disappearing. And this has gone on for a very long time. We need to only look back a few years when people were again in the streets uh, and, and people were being killed and rounded up and thrown in Evan jail. And the, the Iranian people, the Persian people, were calling out for the world. They were saying in Farsi, are you with them or are you with us? And there's a similar angst in, inside the country and certainly among Iranians everywhere. And we need, and I believe we have a moral obligation to help those inside Iran um, towards the path of peace and democracy. And as uh, uh, David said, it, this has enormous implications throughout the entire region. Th this would pull the, the thorn from the lion's paw. And I think continuing specific steps, um, in, in, the investigation is one thing, but including applying Magnitsky sanctions here in Canada and in places where they have legislation to pressure Iranian regime officials. These are, are good tools to uh, Can you just uh, explain signal. the Magnitsky sanctions? I'm sorry? Can you just explain for the audience the Magnitsky scandals quickly? <laughs> yeah, very quickly. It's a piece of legislation that we adopted in Canada. The United States has, had, uh, has adopted it, other European countries, that allow for travel bans, asset freezes, holding those who are responsible for the harm to innocent people inside Iran accountable. It doesn't apply just to Iran, but it could be used. It, it actually comes out of legislation involving uh, the Russian regime and uh, uh, and, and a person named Sergei Magnitsky, who was murdered in a Russian jail for basically disclosing, disclosing corruption. Um, but it, it's a very, very effective tool, and it's aimed at present, preventing countries like ours being a safe haven for those in the Iranian regime. But it requires coordination with other countries and other agencies and our allies, essentially. And there was a reference to the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the IRGC. Yep. We should be listing them. In fact, Canada, you will know, Libby, uh, passed a motion in the Parliament of Canada over a year and a half ago uh, that would do just that. So it wouldn't just be the Quds Force that's listed. As a but, terrorist uh, organization. As a terrorist organization for the atrocities that they have committed uh, around the region and, quite frankly, around the world that were headed up by this General Soleimani. Who, uh, who was the target of the, uh, the drone strike. And so it's about leadership. It's about countries, Western, peaceful nations such as ours, NATO countries, coming together and demonstrating through words and action that we are, in fact, with the Persian people uh, who want to embrace uh, a peaceful and, uh, and democratic future. And Canada is well-situated, so I don't see us as being squeezed between uh, the United States and others. I see us being firmly on the side of those countries that want to assist and to help Iran reach its peaceful aspirations for a future for their people. 
Okay, Peter, I know that you have to go, so thank you very much for being with us, and I'm sure there will be a lot of follow-up on this terrible tragedy. Yeah, it's my pleasure to be with you, and thank you for bringing attention to this issue. Okay, bye-bye. Bye now. Okay, we continue with Dr. David Carment and Larry yes. Haas. And, uh, Larry, um, yes. do you see the perception in the States that people in Canada are blaming Trump for this as opposed to Iran? Uh, with all due respect, um, there's a lot going on in Washington at the moment, and, you know, <laughs> okay. I read the papers very closely and watch TV very closely uh, all day long, and uh, this particular incident, because it has not affected Americans, and I'm not trying to be crass about this, I'm, I'm just trying to answer be your realistic? question honestly. I get yes, your drift. I'm trying to be realistic. It is not dominating the news. We are quite aware of it, but the outrage that you feel justifiably for the number of Canadians that uh, were, in essence, assassinated in cold blood uh, by this act, by the regime, is not what I would consider one of the top three or four front burner issues at the moment. So as a result, the fact that um, there are people north of our border who are blaming the United States for this uh, uh, plane atrocity is not really getting that much attention. A few people have asked congressional leaders about it. They have reacted. They have Republican leaders have denied that we're really responsible for this. Um, they've defended Trump, not surprisingly. But it's not really getting that much attention in all candor. And do you have any confidence that these arrests by the regime will result in anything like a, a fair trial, or do you think that it will be, uh, you know, just finding some scapegoats for it? I think it's far more likely to be the latter. Uh, you know, I, I would echo uh, everything that uh, the previous speaker said about the nature of this regime and everything that I said previously and our other, and our other guests um, today. Uh, we're all quite aware of the the nature of this regime, its brutal suppression of human rights, um, and I would see no reason to believe that uh, this regime will do the least amount that it can get away with uh, while protecting those who may ultimately be responsible for this uh, up the chain, commanders at the IRGC or uh, military officials, uh, you know, somewhere else uh, within the, you know, supporting the, this regime. So um, I, I don't think there is any reason to have any confidence that all of a sudden this evil, brutal regime is going to somehow open itself up um, to the world and be quite honest about how this came about and a fair judgment uh, for those who were hurt by it. I, there's no reason to have any confidence in that. David Carment, yeah. should Canada designate the Revolutionary Guard as a terrorist organization? Will that be useful? Well, I think they're being pressured to do that. And I think uh, that could easily be an outcome that evolves from the current investigation that's being undertaken. They're, keep in mind, they're Canada doesn't have a diplomatic presence in Iran proper. Right. We have currently 10 diplomatic officials working through a consular office established there to support the families that were <coughs> um, whose, whose uh, family members were 
affected by the, the crash as well as to do an investigation. But we're a long way away from Canada pursuing that particular course of action. I think, I mean, to respond to the previous speaker, um, uh, he's absolutely right that we have a, a U.S. president who's distracted by other things, not the least of which is impeachment, but he's also being uh, potentially constrained in the kind of adventurous foreign policies that he's fond of. Uh, there's talk of a congressional uh, 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 set of laws being put in place that would... Uh, He's the guy who the ran on stopping those things. Well, uh, yeah. this is this is the problem. Yeah. My concern is rather what, if we agree that this is a uh, America that is not fully committed to an, a solution that would see a peaceful outcome in Iran, then we're, we're looking at a, a kind of <clears throat> Arab Spring phase two that would make uh, the situations in... Uh, the Middle East look rather subtle in comparison. I mean, the, the, uh, the possibility of regime change there without violence seems rather slim. And if there is, I mean, know. Uh, who knows what comes next? So when, when it comes time to tallying up the atrocities, no doubt the Revolutionary Guard will be on that list of targets. But that, that remains to be seen. The, the real challenge for Canada is whether it can play a diplomatic role here. And that seems rather slim, but nevertheless, uh, with the Europeans being pushed towards a more confrontational uh, position vis-a-vis Iran, there isn't much room here for a diplomatic outcome, and that does not bode well for the future of the region. Um, we now know that in a, when they're pushed to the edge, uh, they will strike out. We've already seen evidence of that, and they have proxies operating throughout the region, not the least of which are in Iraq, where Canada has had soldiers targeted, but so have the European allies who are doing the training mission there, and more specifically, uh, the leadership of Iraq has asked formally for the, the Americans to leave, to vacate the country. This the does region. not bode well for uh, a stable region. If that is something that we desire, uh, looking beyond the situation in Iran, looking at the refugees that moved out of Syria after its collapse, we know that Iran, the Iranian situation will be much more horrendous. So I think there's a vested interest in having the Americans remain committed to this, but more specifically to supporting a diplomatic outcome. In that sense, I'm not optimistic. Uh, we need uh, more diplomats on the ground and less or fewer soldiers, and I'm not sure that the United States has positioned itself to play a pivotal role here, and furthermore, by pushing Europe, the Europeans to possibly uh, fall in line with the maximum pressure doctrine, I think uh, the outcome here is not going to be a positive one. I mean, the idea of a course of diplomatic outcome is appealing because it doesn't seem to require a lot of commitment on the part of uh, the, the American military. I mean, you launch a few drones, take out a few important people, and voila, you've got regime change. Well, I don't think it's going to happen that way. So Larry Haas, um, do you have any yeah. sense if there is regime change, what's next? Well, can I um, can I step back for a second because there's been a lot of reference to Trump and to U.S. policy, and I was just uh, hoping I could make a few sure. um, points uh, when it comes to that. Um, so a few a few things first about Trump and a few things about larger larger U.S. policy. Uh, look, I, I I am the last person who's going to defend him. I'm a I'm a a, a very fierce critic of him in terms of his policies, both foreign and domestic. With regard to foreign policy, he is obviously impulsive. Uh, you don't get a sense that there is a long-term strategic vision, although certainly those around him, like Mike Pompeo, uh, like Defense Secretary Esper, 
and others at the National Security Council are thinking about the long-term strategy. Part of the problem is they don't necessarily agree with one another, and because the president doesn't think in terms of long-term strategic policy, um, uh, there's no one who is bringing these conversations uh, to closure. So I agree with, you know, I share the concerns as to where U.S. policy is going to be day to day. The larger problem, however, is that like you, we go from a different leader to different leader over the course of time. And we've had a whole variety of different presidents since the 1979 revolution that brought this regime to power in Tehran. And we have tried a whole variety of different things very often trying to build stronger relations with this regime no no uh no time more forcefully than under president obama that in essence was the purpose of the iran nuclear deal not just to constrain the nuclear program but hopefully as the first step in nourishing stronger relations between Iran and the United States and other Western powers. In all candor, I thought it was remarkably naive because the nature of this regime is such that I don't think we can see stronger relations because I don't think that that's the way the regime thinks. It is revolutionary. It is expansionist. It is terror sponsoring. It does not share the values of the United States or Canada or freedom-loving people all across the West. What I think that we have not done, this is my final point, what I think we have not done, which we can do if we had consensus here in the United States, is to forcefully confront the regime in the way that we are in terms of sanctioning its behavior, but at the same time reaching out and trying to build much stronger relations with the Iranian people. And I suggest that we do it very publicly uh, through the presidential pulpit, through the, uh, through the Voice of America and other organs to make clear that we are with them. Uh, they want a different regime. That's not necessarily forcing military action. It is encouraging them to keep up their efforts in whatever way they want to uh, secure more rights from this regime or on their own Larry. to take matters into their own hands and topple it. I am not Pollyannish about this. I understand uh, what the ramifications are if the if the Iranian people really decide one day that they've had enough and they want a different regime. I don't know that it would necessarily be peaceful, although you never know how these things are going to go. But if we continue to be fearful uh, in terms of what the next uh, action by the regime is going to be because they somehow feel cornered by the United States that is, you know, calling them on their behavior, then I don't think we're going to get anywhere. So I want to be nuanced in terms of what I'm saying, but I do think there's a way to apply pressure to this regime and at the same time to try to nourish stronger relations 
with a very unhappy population that would that would like nothing more than a lot more freedom and a lot more democracy in their country. Yeah, except what we've seen after the Arab Spring is even more repressive regimes. I mean, what I'm asking is, I'm not aware, is there any kind of burgeoning opposition movement there? there I mean, that's organized. Can I hop in here? Sure. I, I think what Larry has said is absolutely right. It's fantastic. Great ideas. question is, it's not whether we're Pollyannish or... Uh, we are naive, but rather, are we committed? And this is, goes to my core question of whether or not the United States in particular has the kind of moral leadership, the diplomatic capacity to make a difference in a situation which is unlike anything else that we will see uh, in the Middle East. Uh, it's a large country, a proud culture, large, capable military, possibly with nuclear capacity in the near future. Um, it's, this is not Afghanistan. This is not Iraq. This is a significantly powerful country which has regional influence. This will require more than just America to play a role. It will require the Europeans, it will require the regional players to work together. If, believe it or not, Russia said there needs to be some kind of larger global capacity to address Middle East uh, problems. And that should be something we should be thinking about whether or not uh, the United States should be the leader on this or whether we should be working together collectively to address this core issue. The the track record here is not great. And when you look at the countries in the region, whether it's Iraq, which is now asking the United States to leave, uh, or Yemen, or for that matter, Syria, or further afield, Afghanistan and Libya, these are countries that have not successfully transitioned to open functional democracies, let alone... uh, reasonably economically prosperous states. The question then is, what do we need to do better than we are doing now? And I I put it to to you that the current course of action is perhaps necessary but not sufficient. We've got to do a heck of a lot more on the diplomatic front. I think it's great that we reach out, that uh, we see Michael Pompeo sending these messages out to the Iranian people, but that alone is not going to get us where we want to go. Okay, we're uh, basically out of time. I'm going to give Larry the last word, uh, but uh, briefly, like 20, 30 seconds, please. Well, I, I largely agree. Um, we do need um, a long-term commitment, uh, and, uh, and we need to stick with it, and it needs to be a much broader, more comprehensive uh, strategy. And these things are risky, but I do think there's a moral reason and a geopolitical reason for the long term to try to reach out and encourage people who have the values that we share and over the long term can make the Middle East a marginally better place. We are out of time, but I just want to point one thing out, and this is in terms of the historical memory of the Iranians. You mentioned the 1979 revolution, but they still remember in the 50s when their communist leader was taken out by the CIA. But but this is a lot. This is a very young population now. And they have larger concerns. They want opportunity, and they want freedom. I hear what you're saying. I agree. That is a memory. But I don't think it's the driving force in the population at the moment. I would I'll just add to this quickly. I think they want to do it their way. And whatever solution 
uh, we come up with will be one based on Iranian values. It may not reflect what we believe to be uh, consistent with our own values, um, but it will necessarily reflect popular choice. Okay. Uh, and let's leave it at that. Okay, let's leave it at that. Thank you so much, Dr. David Carment and Larry Haas in New York. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, and you know what? John in Brampton has been waiting so patiently for his say, so we'll take this call before we go to a break. Hi, John. Hi, Libby. Thanks for taking it. Uh, I was hoping to, uh, to ask Peter McKay if he would do the country a favor and help Mr. Trudeau uh, with the understanding of uh, what, how you get in the middle of something. It's by not choosing a side. Um, it seems, I, I believe that Trudeau doesn't know the difference between uh, enemies and allies. Uh, his, his, I guess, uh, his comments about, you know, Trump and, and, and U.S.'s responsibility, all of that, you know what, it, if it's true, and maybe it is, and I, and I don't care. But He didn't name them. It was, it was pretty subtle, what he said. I didn't read it that yeah, way. Yeah, and again, that's why, I, hopefully, I'll, I'll keep this short. I wanted to ask Mr. McKay if he would use his influence and have a little chat with Trudeau. Who knows? Maybe we we can enlighten him. I I don't think that Peter McKay is on the list of people he chats with, (laughs) but uh, you never know. Maybe they're all listening. John, thanks for your call. Thanks. Bye. Bye. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.